Welcome to the Fayetteville Fire Podcast, where we talk about all things fire-related, safety tips, and things that are happening in our can-do city. My name is Firefighter Demetri Goins, Fire Life Safety Educator. And I'm Captain Don Cheetah, our Community Risk Reduction Camp for the City of Fayetteville Fire Department, and we're your host for the podcast. So today uh, we are going to talk about uh, the fire department's hazmat team. But before we do that, did you know that car crashes are the leading cause of unintentional death for children in North Carolina? Uh, We'll talk about that later during our safety message for the month. Uh, Joining us today on the show, we have Assistant Chief Dave Rickmeyer and Captain Zach Pill. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today. How are you all doing? Doing pretty good. Thanks for the invite. Doing good, sir. Thank you. Thank you for being here. So, hazardous materials. Tell us, what is hazardous materials? Well, hazardous materials can be just about everything uh, that we live with in our everyday lives. If you look at the textbook definition, um, it is any substance that, due to its quantity or its use, is hazardous to the human health or the environment. Um, you know, most people get the Hollywood version of what hazardous material is when they when they see things in movies, and it's also the it's always the the really bad stuff. The you know the, we always laugh at it's the ethyl methyl death, right? The stuff that's going to kill you with just a little pin drop. But honestly, the stuff that we deal with every day. Um, most people are familiar with carbonated beverages, sodas, um, beer, stuff like that that are carbonated with or uh, carbon dioxide, and you know. Carbon dioxide is used in every restaurant and every brewery and every quick stop. It's what carbonates our beverages. And carbon dioxide is not one of those extremely lethal chemicals that everybody gets from that that Hollywood version of watching movies, but it is dangerous. Carbon dioxide is considered a simple asphyxiant, which means it displaces oxygen. So again, it's not something that is going to melt your skin off if you come in contact with it, but just through the simple fact that it, it removes the oxygen from a room, and we all know that we need oxygen to breathe, it is considered a hazardous material. We used to joke about in a hazmat team is milk a hazardous material it sure is it actually when you drink milk it's not but if milk gets sport spilled into a water stream it's very toxic to the critters that are in the water exactly so so when did when did Fayetteville get started with the hazmat team or how did it come about the hazardous materials team here in Fayetteville well that was before I was born so that's on you (laughs) (laughs) so um the HAZMAT team, which originally started as the Cumberland Emergency Response Team in 1989, came about actually some years previous through some federal legislation. So there was um, a few environmental disasters in the 1970s for those of us that were old enough to remember the Love Canal in New York and a few other uh, environmental disasters that prompted the federal government to come up with some legislation. The first one was the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation Liabilities Act 1980. And then there was the Superfund Amendments and Reau- Reauthorization Act in 1986. And those laws basically said a couple things. Number one, that communities had a right to know what chemicals were being used and transported through their communities. The residents had a right to know that. And it also prompted the, the local agencies to create hazardous materials teams to deal with the unintentional release of these chemicals that were being used. So I'm a resident, so I can 
go down to my local government and say, hey, what hazardous materials am I living around? And they're supposed to tell me. You absolutely have the right to do that. Exactly. So in 1989, Cumberland County, through its local emergency planning committee, um, created the Cumberland Emergency Response Team, which a few years later transitioned to the Fayetteville Fire Department Hazardous Materials Team. Which then at, at that point, I think it was later on, 94, 95, the state actually got realized that there was a need for additional hazmat funding and teams. So then that was when the creation of the state ORT team come in, which is also come to Fayetteville because they went across the state and they said, all right, where's the, a lot of your traffic going? Where's your railways, your highways? We put the teams in them locations and we can you know, spread it out throughout the state. So there's a response everywhere throughout the state. So Fayetteville was one of the original six that got chose for that in 94, 95 and that whole creation. So in, in 1989, they decided there was a need for a, a hazmat team, correct? Okay, so what are the, some of the capabilities of that, that team? So the hazmat material team exists to mitigate emergencies with, when an unintentional release of chemicals occur. Um, we have the ability to identify and measure any release of chemicals into the air, water, or soil. So we can tell when it's there because you can't always smell, see, or you know, hear chemicals, right? right. Sometimes Taste. you have to have a tool in order to do that. So we have those measurement tools, those meters, monitors to tell us where it is and how bad it is, how much there is. But then we also have the tools to be able to um, stop the leaks from containers. And that, that's everything from a small cylinder to a 55-gallon drum to a, a highway tanker all the way up to a rail tanker. We have the devices to put on and, and stop leaks from valves and piping and things like that. Okay. Which we just acquired, actually, a new meter that I can identify unknown gases. Oh, So it, it uses a, a technology, which is mass spectrometry, and it pretty much lays out a line, and it goes over that line, what it reads, and it says, all right, well, it's this because it matches 98%. So I can do that for a, a gas now, and I can also do it for a solid and a liquid. So that, it, that's how we would identify. Yep, okay. Right. That's awesome. So so you talked about meters, and you were dealing with hazardous materials. So I'm, I'm assuming there's some, uh, some training that you have to go through and some type of certifications that you'll have to uh, have to uh, use that equipment and to be on this team. Exactly. Right. Actually, the um, your initial fireman, just any fireman in the city of Fayetteville has a, a 40-hour hazmat class. Right. So you start with that, and then once you say, well, I want to do the hazmat side, so then we get more technical with it. So you take an 80-hour chemistry class, and then you go to an 80-hour tech class, which is put on by the state. Okay. And then that gives your technician level, which all of our assigned personnel is at least tech, and then after that you can go to a 40-hour specialty class. So then you get kind of that you learn the niche of some sort and part. Like you learn how to do the highway incidents or do the rail incidents or do like a chemical or radiation incident. So you kind of learn the niche and kind of hone in on that one thing. So as a team, I may have five people, but I've got a highway guy that's, his job is going to be no highway. I got a rail guy, I got a, a radiation guy. So we kind of spread the wealth and then we'll get backup certifications in case somebody's out or the more you know, the better we are. So not only is there training and certifications, but there's specialties within the hazmat team. 
Absolutely. And we, we actually travel all throughout the country in order to get those specialties. Um, the National Fire Academy is in Emmitsburg, Maryland, and we send people up there for specialized training. We go out to Nevada, to uh, New Mexico, to Colorado to get some of our training classes. And, and most of those are uh, Department of Homeland Security funded. They're FEMA funded so that it doesn't actually come out of of, of the you know Fayetteville citizens coffers or it's, it's not tax monies here it's Department of Homeland Security funded and, and that all come about because of what Captain Peel talked about the North Carolina regional response team does that open up things a little bit different than local hazmat being a, a state response team and stuff like that with the funding and the training sure so you know the Fayetteville hazardous materials team obviously serves the citizens of Fayetteville um, we also contract with Cumberland County to provide services to the citizens outside the municipal boundaries of Fayetteville. Being that we are a one of the state teams, which means we contract with North Carolina Emergency Management to provide services to the 10 counties surrounding Cumberland County. So when we respond outside Cumberland County, although we are Fayetteville firefighters, we are responding as the North Carolina uh, Hazardous Materials Regional Response Team 3. Awesome. That's, that's a mouthful. <laughs> it is. It is. That's why. That's why we shorten things up and like acronyms. RRT three. Which is so. So we have you know city policies we follow. We also have um, guidelines set by the state. Which another thing, go back to training is there's the state requires us to get 24 hours of certain hazmat training on top of all the other training that we do. Which I think Rick Chief Rick Myers, uh, the training statistics. I think last quarter we had 2,000 or something training hours for the team. So just in a quarter. Yeah, that's about right. Uh, last quarter, we had 2,183 hours total training for the team. Uh, that's a lot. And, and how many team members are we talking? We have 45 assigned, and then we have an additional 5 to 10 that we can pull from if needed. Okay, and, and where, where are they located at? Primary assigned members are at Station 1, which is downtown on Person Street, and also Station 17, which is on a Bailey Lake Road on the west side of the city. And we split the team – um, to better serve the citizens of Fayetteville. Um, if, if we have a, a hazmat call on the west side of the city, then obviously having the team stationed on that side, they can get there quicker than having to come from all the way from downtown. A good visualization is All-American. That's kind of the, the split. So hazmat one covers the west side and RT3 will cover the east side. And what do we tell our citizens? So we got our, our Fayetteville hazmat team and we're contracted by the state. So... Um, state has a big whatever it is and and they call in for the services of your regional response team three to go out what do we tell the citizens of Fayetteville what what do they do when we're, we're out helping the state do something in in Columbus County or Bladen County sure so the Fayetteville hazmat team actually has its own set its own apparatus its own set of equipment that stays here in Fayetteville and never leaves Fayetteville and um, we have the state equipment and apparatus on top of that. So if our on-duty crews get called by the state to respond to Bladen County, Sampson County, or somewhere out of Fayetteville, then we call in off-duty crews to come back and staff those units. So we never lose that fire and EMS and hazmat coverage that the citizens of, of Fayetteville need. Right. There's, we don't have that gap in services. Okay. Very right. good. Very good. 
So obviously, uh, being on the hazmat team, you have to do a, a lot of training to stay prepared for any incident that may arise. Uh, what are some of the frequent calls that you uh, see regionally? Re- regionally, I mean, it could that opens up the entire world. Um, a lot of time is you know you get chemicals that mix. So you had a, for instance, the other week we went to one where a a, a driver put the chemical in the wrong other chemical. So a bulk container he mixed. Um, Sodium hydroxide, which is it's a bleach solution. Mm. I'm, I'm sorry. It's a sodium hypochlorite. He did that, which is the bleach solution. He makes it in aluminum sulfate. So them two together does a reaction, two different chemicals, and it produced chlorine gas. So we actually went to go you know, air monitor and mitigate that. See, that's why I'm glad you all are on the hazmat team. I wouldn't know that was a bad thing. <laughs> I wouldn't know not yeah, to you, mix You'd it. understand when you see a green gas coming out of stuff. That would make sense then. So, so what about Fayetteville? I mean, what what's the most re- most amount of calls or uh, the most frequent calls we run in Fayetteville? Well, ironically, it's the the gas leaks is probably number one. So you you're putting cable in the ground, thirty six inches in the ground. There's a gas line. You know, with boring and not being able to see where you're going, they hit gas lines get hit, and you know. So we we, we actually we can dig that up. We can put a clamp on it and actually stop the leak. So that's what we do for that. Um, CO emergencies, carbon monoxide, you know, see, you know, smoke detector alarms, you also got CO alarms. Well, when they go off, you know, usually CO is from a byproduct of combustion. So either, you know, if you got a water heater, maybe the, the vent's off just a quarter inch, well, that CO's got to go somewhere. That byproduct has to go, so it, it pumps through the house, and that's where it sets the alarm off. We actually had an uptick in um, people bringing their cars when they come home in the garage, close the garage, but never con- turn their car off. So all that emissions is just pumping in the house, which thus bumps up the CO. So now the CO goes off. And that's, that's right. So we got a lot of gas leaks digging. Um, well, we can tell the residents out there, what's the, there's a phone number out there. You can call 811 before you're going to dig a fence post and set up your nice chain link or privacy fence. Yep. Uh, reach out to 811. They'll, they'll come out and tell you where your gas line is and, and even electrical lines. So Absolutely. You're, you're not cutting into something. Most people think they know what, what's on their property, what's underground on their property, but sometimes there are utility lines that run through the property in right-of-ways that they may not know is there. It may be a service line that actually runs to their house that they're not familiar with. So even if it's, it, it, like you said, even if it's just a resident digging on their own property, it's still important to call 811 and get those utilities located before they dig. Um, but the majority of our calls are usually due to those commercial operations that Captain Peel mentioned with the underground boring for the installation of fiber. And and what about the residential side for our residents? What are some of the most common? You mentioned CO. Is that, that the most common or other hazardous materials calls within residents that you deal with? Sure. Well, we go to the gas leaks within residents as well. So um, people that have natural gas or propane on their house. Uh, they may have a water heater or a gas furnace or things like that that uh, that is run by gas or propane. So we'll go to those leaks in residences as well. Um, the carbon monoxide, as Captain Peel mentioned, um, is is a, rates up there as one of our highest type of calls that we go to in residential properties. Um, usually it's due to um, appliances that are not running properly. And again, whether that be the, your gas furnace or your water heater or something like that, that has not been maintained, it's not running properly, so it's not burning the gas off like it should, and it is producing that carbon monoxide. Um, so we go to those quite a bit as well. And other times it's it's just 
um, residents not knowing. Um, during storms, we always preach don't run generators inside, run in a ve- you know, well-ventilated area. Right. You don't want to leave that generator outside for it to get stolen. You don't want to leave that generator outside in the pouring rain during a hurricane. However, when it's running, using gasoline, it's running, it's producing that carbon monoxide, and you cannot have it inside with you. And, and I remember going to a call, uh, just Hurricane Matthew, uh, they, FEMA wasn't feeling good. They had the generator outside, but they had it right next to the house underneath the over, overhang so it wouldn't get wet. And it was so close that it was still pumping that carbon monoxide from that gasoline-run motor into the house. Exactly. Which I, which I think this would be kind of a good spot to put. Like the, So the carbon monoxide sensor, there's actually 15, 20 more gases that it's cross-sensitive to. So just because you have a, your carbon monoxide sensor is going off doesn't mean, well, I have no gas. Well, there could be another gas or something there that it sets off and it's cross-sensitive to, which means that it will go in alert mode saying, hey, I have something. So that's also a good thing for everybody to know. Yeah, that is that is good. Great information. What about propane tanks? I mean, they're pr- pretty common here, everybody's backyard, propane gas grills and stuff, propane tanks. Do you see a lot of leaks with them in the households? We sure do. Sometimes it's uh, as simple as um, an overfilled tank. So propane is something that wants to be a gas in its, its natural state. And when we put it in the tanks, it, it, we force it, compress it down until it becomes a liquid. So you're not supposed to fill the tanks all the way. You're supposed to only fill them to 80%. You'll leave that 20% for expansion due to temperature changes, heat rise, things like that. But sometimes, uh, you know, whether it be the, the 100-pound or 250-pound cylinder behind a house that people use um, to either heat their house with or whatever, or even just the 20-pound cylinder that we use on our gas grills, sometimes those tanks get overfilled, and then the temperature rises outside and they'll what we call pop off. They, they pop off that excess pressure, they release propane, and a lot of times people will call us to come deal with that. Also, if you're having like a leak at the tank or anything, there'll actually be frost buildup. As, as Chief Rickman was saying, that rapid expansion actually pretty much freezes everything over. So if you're, you know, I wonder if my tank's leaking because I smell propane, you can do a quick visual check, you know, at least give a, an initial idea if you have a leak or anywhere because it does that rapid change. So, so now I'm, I'm kind of a worried guy. So now when I go home, how do I do a quick check on my tank just to make sure I ain't leaking around there? Just spray some soap water on it, some Windex. You can, but a lot of times your, your smell is your best indicator. If you do have a natural gas or propane leak, um, you know, a, a substance called ethyl mercaptum is actually added to the gases so that when it does leak, you can tell it has that, that sulfur smell or that rotten egg smell. Um, and that is actually, um, specifically added to the product so you know when there's a leak. So you can your, your sense of smell is usually your best indicator if you do have a leak. Because yeah, naturally, the, neither one of them have a smell to them, so that's the, the reason why they pretty much have to put that in there. All right. And as, as long as it's not March or April and heavy pollen time of year, the nose is the best one to use, right? I'm, even yeah. in that time frame, it's, you, you can still smell it, believe me. <laughs> so train derailments. Um, in the last month and a half, You've seen on the news, Palestine, Ohio, big toxic chemical release, train derailment. Um, Raymond, Minnesota, uh, train derailment, released ethanol. Uh, West Virginia, diesel and oil spilled into one of the oldest uh, rivers in the United States. Um, These are just three of over a dozen train derailments just in the month of March um, that I researched. Uh, 
what do we tell our folks here? I mean, we live in Fayetteville. It's 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 still part of kind of what I would consider like an old southern town. We still got the train run right through downtown. Um, as a citizen, I see these trains running through all day long with all these different tanks. Uh, do I need to worry about uh, Palestine, Ohio, or or Raymond, Minnesota incident happening here? So I guess the biggest thing I'd like to highlight with this is that um, overall, the rail industry safety record is extremely good. It's extremely good. When you look at the amount of track miles they put on and how many hazardous materials uh, shipments that they actually make, the, the actual level of, of incidence is very low, and the level of serious incidence is very low. The reason why everybody knows and now you can mention Palestine, Ohio, which probably nobody knew before this incident. Now everybody knows where Palestine, Ohio is. The reason that everybody knows this now is because of the severity of the incident that did happen. So although the rail industry safety record is very, very good because of the amount of products that they transport, when something happens, it ends up being very large and catastrophic. Um, and I know in that particular incident, the, the responders and the people that dealt with that, that train derailment and the subsequent um, chemicals, they got a lot of heat for how they handled it. And um, if you're familiar with it at all, they did what's called a col uh, controlled release of the vinyl chloride. And they did that because as responders, it's always better to know and actually control when the product is going to come out, where it's going to go, how it's going to come out, all those type things, than to have it come out inadvertently or when you're not expecting it, things like that. So they chose, as, as a mitigation strategy, they chose to do a controlled release of that product after, after the evacuations had already occurred and those type things. Now, that doesn't mean it was it was absolutely safe to do it in that way, but it was safer than not doing it. There were still environmental hazards that occurred. The, the, the release of, of the toxic byproducts when they burned it off. But it was, again, it was better than having the tanks overpressurize and explode in an uncontrolled manner when we weren't expecting it. Which I guess, you know, you also can put in the mind that, you know, we have people that specialize in the real car instance if it was to happen. And Chief Rickmeyer can talk a little bit more if he'd like to on it. We just actually got a grant to get a kit that fits any you know rail car there is. It's a kit by Indian Springs, so it's it fits a lot different stuff. So if you do have a leak from a, a tank car, we, we theoretically can stop it then, as long as it does not damage the container. And I think Chief Rickmeyer made a great point. You know, uh, when you're sitting there on TV and you, you see a uh, train derailment and you see all this fire and – and why ain't they're firemen? Why ain't they putting the fire out? You know, and you deal with things like propane and, and methane and ethanol and, and different things that are going to be easier to control when they're burning. We just let them burn because we know that the product's getting consumed and not necessarily being released in the environment. The lesser of two evils, I guess, so to speak. A absolutely. Um, and, and you're right. Sometimes the bystanders and don't understand why we're continuing to let it burn or why they can't fathom why we would want to do an explosive controlled release of a product. But there are many experts that get involved in these type incidents. They have the training they have the expertise um, to make the decisions that are that are best for the citizens and the environment. Very good. And, and with all these calls that come along, and all this fancy equipment, uh, Captain Peel's 
talked about a few new tools you got. There's got to be what type of expenses in in recovery and stuff does this lead into? So a hazmat response can be quite expensive because of the cost of the tools and the suits and, and things we have to use. Um, within the city of Fayetteville, we do have an ordinance. Uh, it's Chapter 11, Article 3, that gives us the ability to build a responsible party for any type of cost recovery associated with a hazmat response. Um, outside of the city of Fayetteville, any responses that we go to as, as members of the regional response team is actually the city of Fayetteville is compensated by the North Carolina Emergency Management. So we don't, we don't necessarily incur any costs when we go outside of Fayetteville because everything is, is covered. Well, when it, like talking to the expenses part, like the meter I was talking about that just does identify solids and liquids by itself. So $130,000, $140,000 You take that one and the new one we got, which is 90, 80, 90,000. That's just two meters. That's not including my other 10, 12, 14 meters, calibration gases, suits, tools, all that stuff. So hazmat, if you put the word hazmat on something, it automatically goes up, you know, 40, 60% <laughs> over everybody else. So the expense is great, which is great. That's why the state comes in and kind of helps because they know how expensive it is and they know, well, we can help out this way. So it takes some of the burden off the city. Very nice. Gentlemen, we thank you for joining us. Thank you for Thanks for us. having us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Earlier in our uh, segment, we talked about car crashes being the cause of unintentional, the leading cause of unintentional death for children in North Carolina. Uh, now we are going to talk about why having the proper car seat for your child is important. Uh, did you also know that nine out of 10 children are improperly restrained? Here in the city of Fayetteville, we do have a child passenger seat program. Uh, we also have three uh, permanent checking stations, uh, one being Station 3, located on Rose Hill Road, uh, another being Station 9, located on Santa Fe Drive, and lastly, Station 12, uh, located on uh, Hope Mills Road. Frequent questions that we have, how do you know that your child is in the right car seat? Uh, well, whenever you are purchasing a car seat, uh, there are labels on there to make sure that your child uh, has, is the right height, the right weight for the car seat. Uh, you could also, if you're not sure, take it to one of our permanent checking stations. A common uh, saying here in the state of North Carolina, uh, 8 and 80, people ask, uh, well, do we need uh, when can my child come out of a car seat? Do they need to be eight years old? Do they need to be 80 pounds? Do they need to be both? North Carolina law says that you only need to have one of those covered uh, at the child. If the child is eight years old and uh, they are at the max requirement of their booster seat, then they can uh, come out. And if they are 80 pounds, they can also uh, sit in the seat without a booster and just used a lap and shoulder belt. Uh, for more information, I have a couple websites you can visit. You can visit UNC Highway Safety Research Center. You can also visit Safe Kids Worldwide, uh, CPS Certification Program, and the North Carolina Governor's Highway Safety Program. And like I said, if you got any questions at all about the right car seat, please come by one of our stations. It costs you nothing. Get your car seat checked out. We'll make sure our kids are safe. Thank you for joining us on the Fayetteville Fire Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to Radio Fayetteville on your favorite streaming platform to listen to all our podcasts. Join us on our next show. We're going to talk about technical rescue program 
and the fire department's urban search and rescue team.